Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I was recently in Lviv, Ukraine, to make a documentary for BBC Radio 4, and this podcast will be some random thoughts from Lviv, a city under renewed fire. The documentary I'm working on is called Ukraine, War and Words. I can no longer go to the front line, much as I would like to. It's a concession to age. Reporters who muck in at the front are aware, or should be aware, that they are always a potential danger to the combatants and civilians around them. I'm too old to run away from danger, as I was able to do in Iraq and Bosnia, and it's wrong to expect people doing the fighting to look out for me should they need to give up ground or get to shelter in a hurry. So I came here to Lviv, about 600 miles from the front, to report on war's impact on those who write, who forge in the smithy of their souls the uncreated culture of their country, a country which is being born in a slow process of war, which, as everyone here reminds a visitor, really began in 2014, after the Maidan demonstrations, or revolution of dignity, as they call it, led to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Crimea and the eastern regions of Ukraine. Being here reminds me that war is not just a word. We use the word in the U.S. and U.K. as a metaphor, usually in relation to politics, where arguments between parties and factions are called wars for dramatic effect. Really, journalists should stop using the word that way. Real war forces a new state of mind. It makes everyone hyper-alert and every moment more fierce. To visit a society at war is to experience one's own humanity more intensely. When Ukrainians say they are fighting a war for our civilization, they're not speaking hyperbolically. They are telling you with the fierce intensity of people whose country is at war what they know to be the stakes. Post-Soviet Russia remains an unreformed malignancy among nations. There are many reasons for that, and I won't go into them now, but it is Ukrainians who are now bearing the brunt of Russia's brutality. Russia invaded their country, leveled major cities, and has killed literally thousands of civilians, many in the most barbaric manner imaginable, their bodies dumped into mass graves. Yet, in Lviv, daily life goes on. I've been here before, and no just two alterations. From time to time, as you walk around the city, you will see a knot of people standing still near a church, and you know that a soldier's funeral is being held, and these scenes take place all day, every day. There are also fewer men in their twenties through forties around, either going to work or walking with a girlfriend around Renock Square. They're in the army. This is my third trip to Lviv, and the evolution of the place has been quite dramatic. Ukraine as a nation-state is a new entity. It only gained independence with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, and for 30 years it has been trying to emancipate itself from the past and create itself on the fly. It has not been easy. My first trip was a decade ago, in advance of the 2012 European football tournament, which was being held in Poland and Ukraine. There was concern about racism in the stands. Some Polish and Ukrainian teams had followers who were racist and anti-Semitic, a neat trick as there are virtually no Jews left in this part of the world. I did a series of stories for a now defunct news site called Global Post. At the same time, preparations for the European football tournament were underway. There were elections, and in Lviv Oblast, 
province and openly anti-Semitic parties, Swoboda, had won more seats on the council than any other. They had also won a few seats in the Rada, the national parliament. They were blood-and-soil ethno-nationalists of the worst kind, who admired Hitler's theories on the subject and held parades to honor the memory of the fallen in the SS Halicina Brigade. Halicina is Galicia. You and I would call them Nazi collaborators. They called them freedom fighters in temporary alliance with those who were trying to rid the world of the communists, or Jew communists, as they like to say. Their election was a shock and an embarrassment to many in the area, and it colored my view of Lviv and Ukraine. But then, just 18 months later, the then-president, Viktor Yanukovych, a pro-Russian puppet, decided at the last minute to cancel an agreement on closer ties with the European Union and instead signed one for closer ties with Putin's Russia. This touched off protest in Kiev's main square, the Maidan. The protests became a spontaneous political movement, an attempt by people who had yet to experience the promise of independence that finally the last leaders tainted by Soviet-era connections would be put out of power forever. Ninety days after the first Maidan demonstration, Yanukovych resigned and fled to Russia. Within weeks, Russia seized Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine. Everyone I met in Lviv on this trip regards that as the real beginning of the war. In 2018, I went back to Ukraine to make a BBC World Service documentary about the revival of Jewish life in the country. Based on my first visit and conversations with Svoboda leaders, that seemed unlikely, and I wanted to investigate for myself. But the phenomenon was real as was the fact that Svoboda, after its surprise showing in 2012, steadily lost support and had become irrelevant politically. The documentary, called Journey to Ashkenaz, looked at the revival of Jewish life through the prism of my family connections to Ukraine. My paternal grandparents' families came from the country, my grandfather's father from Odessa, and my grandmother from a shtetl 50 miles east of Lviv, or Lemberg as it was called when she was a girl, and the whole area was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You can find the doc in the archive section of the FRDH website at www.goldfarbpod.com. And while you're there, please make a donation. This podcast is sustained by listeners' generosity. Anyway, the changes in Lviv were immense, not just in terms of its pleasures. When it was Lemberg, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there had been a tremendous Viennese-style café culture, and it had been revived. But more important, the past was being acknowledged. My trip coincided with a memorial being dedicated to the victims of the Yanovska labor death camp, and another at the site of the Golden Rose Synagogue, which was demolished by the Nazis in 1943, 350 years after it was erected. There were little memorial plaques narrating events of the Holocaust placed around the city. The Ukrainian Catholic University had even started a graduate program in Jewish studies. Students had to learn Yiddish as part of the course. In 2012, a representative of a pro-Russian party, the loneliest woman in Lviv, as I described her, had told me, We are a new country. Svoboda is just part of growing pains. How old was U.S. when it had its civil war? Seventy years? She was well-versed in history. We're not even thirty years old. 
It was Yom Kippur when I arrived in Lviv this trip, and I walked over to the Golden Rose to pray. I'm a Jew, never deny it, proud, but I'm not religious. Yet I can't get away from religion either. When I go to Israel, I always try to go up to Jerusalem, and you really do have to go up. It's on top of quite a steep series of hills. And I pray at the wall. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I fast and say Kaddish and the Achet, the prayer for forgiveness. But the thing is, I'm not observant, and I don't believe in the biblical name I must not say. Spinoza's metaphysics work for me. Everything is part of a single limitless substance that even to conceive of is to limit because I am a limited part of it. Well, that works for me. Anyway, I'm compelled to say Kaddish on the site of the ruin. I say it for my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, three of whom I knew. I say it for all the Jews of Galicia who went to their deaths not knowing who would say Kaddish for them. Somewhere in my laptop I have a translation of the report of the SS Gruppenführer who was put in charge of Galicia in September, I think, of 1941. It was written not quite a year and a half later and claimed there were no Jews left in the province. He wasn't exaggerating. Simon Wiesenthal survived the Yanovska camp at the edge of the city, but probably 99% of Galicia's Jews perished. So, on the side of the Golden Rose, I said prayers, because they're embedded in who I am, and that made me think about identity. My Jewishness, my Americanness, my Britishness. Since I've lived half my life in the UK, it must be part of my identity. Mostly, though, about Jewishness. The memorial at the Golden Rose is a series of headstone-like blocks of granite onto which the story of Lviv's Jews in the Holocaust are carved. We Jews place stones on graves when we visit our dead, and the memorial's ground is paved with loose, thick stones for the visitations that never happened to Jewish cemeteries, since most of them were desecrated and there were so few survivors to visit the graves. At the Golden Rose this day, there were hippie high school students, my daughter's age, hanging around, playing guitars, giggling, smoking. I wonder if they knew what happened there. Probably. But I'm reasonably certain they had no idea it was Yom Kippur. While I was in Lviv, the war entered a new phase. The Kerch Bridge, linking Crimea to Russia, sustained severe damage in a sabotage bombing, details of which are still not clear. The bridge was opened by Vladimir Putin in 2018, and he regards it as a symbol of his desire to reclaim not just Crimea, but all of Ukraine for Russia. A few days later, Russia launched cruise missiles from all directions against every part of Ukraine. As I said, Lviv is 600 miles from the front line, but that did not spare it attack. That evening, the city's young people turned out in Renoc Square, the wide-open medieval heart of the city, to dance joyous defiance. As a journalist with nearly four decades' experience, I am not above cynicism, but the spirit of the kids, and actually every Ukrainian, overwhelms the cynic. History has granted Ukrainians a very rare chance to create their own nation-state, anew, fresh, and they're embracing it. I'm not a big fan of nationalism, 
but I'm not sure how a people given this kind of opportunity by impersonal historical forces can achieve that end without a healthy dose of it. I wonder about the two countries of which I am a citizen. One, which hovers on the brink of civil conflict, and the other, allowing itself to be reduced in wealth and geopolitical importance by its minority of a minority government. In the US and Britain, the determined optimism I saw in Ukraine is absent. We live in an enervated space, bounded on all sides by impotent anger and despair. A headline on the New York Times homepage on October 24th, 2022, the day I recorded this podcast, read, Fears over fate of democracy leave many voters resigned. In Ukraine, there's no time for this. The enemy is real, armed, and is trying to murder you and physically destroy your country. And yet, no despair. War is not just a word. As I said at the beginning, it is a new state of mind, a new reality that marks in blood the end of one world, and in the case of Ukraine, the hopeful beginning of an unknowable new one. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.